Alcohol Tipping Point is brought to you in partnership with Speak Studios and Speak Boise. Speak Boise is a community-driven studio space where voices from all walks of life can speak and be heard. You can find them on Instagram and Facebook at Speak Studios, Speak Boise, and at their website, speakstudios.com. Speak Studios, speak and be heard. This podcast is also brought to you by Instant Imprints. Promote better with Instant Imprints. Instant Imprints are Boise's visual communications experts and your place for everything you need to promote your business, club, school, or group. As a locally owned business, Instant Imprints specializes in making your organization more visible with custom branded apparel, embroidery, promotional items, print services, and wide format printing for signs, as well as banners and vehicle graphics. Want better ways to get noticed? Visit Instant Imprints at instantimprints.com slash Boise or call 208-IMPRINT. That's 208-467-7468. Attention Idaho and California residents. If you're shopping for a mortgage, contact PacFi, a mortgage brokerage with the top wholesale lenders in the nation. They are committed to simplifying the mortgage process, saving you time and money. Call 858-442-7048 or visit pacfi.com. NMLS number 1462943, Equal Housing Lender. Welcome back to the Alcohol Tipping Point Podcast. I'm your host, Debbie Maisner, and I have with me today my friend, John. We're just going to call him John K. because he uh, has agreed to come on the show today and talk about rehab. And, and specifically from his perspective, he's been in the business for a long time. Um, so I'm going to let you introduce yourself, John, and just kind of talk about how you started, like what, what your credentials are and where you're at now, like what your role is now in uh, the rehab community. So, um, I start, I've been in the field for about 20 years. Um, in 2000, I graduated with my social work degree. So I'm a licensed clinical social worker. Uh, and I started working at the inpatient level at that time. Um, with adolescents. And uh, as I went along, I started working with adolescents who were struggling with addiction. And uh, I went and got my certification. I got uh, an ACADC, which is an advanced uh, certified drug and alcohol counselor, basically, is what that is. So I have a lot of letters after my name. I don't know if that makes me important or not, but I do have... uh, about 20 years of experience with direct patient care in inpatient rehab. I uh, have worked with adults. Um, I worked with the kids for about uh, 12, 13 years, and then I, I worked with adults. And, and currently, I'm not in direct patient care, but I'm still working uh, in, in rehab. And so. you're at a facility that's not only for um, addiction rehab treatment it is also for other yeah. mental dual diagnosis okay. yeah there's um mental health issues as well um and you'll find um i don't know in your experience but in my experience you'll find that the two go hand in hand a lot of times that um mental health and, and addiction go together a lot so a lot of the people i worked with in in inpatient rehab had you know, not only the addiction, but they were also dealing with uh, mental health issues. Okay. Um, so, and I guess what I, I'm trying to understand better myself is just kind of what, what rehab looks like today. And, and I focus on alcohol um, mm-hmm. and, and who it is for. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about, and when I think of rehab, 
I think of inpatient 28 days Sandra Bullock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm thinking of that when I think of rehab and and I I'm sure it's a stereotype a lot of people have. So just kind of tell me a little bit more about what is rehab actually sure. and who is it for? So 28 days actually is not that bad of a depiction of rehab. Um, they had a pretty swank place and they were able to kind of come and go as they please, which was a little weird. But other than that, I thought it was a pretty good portrayal of the rehab experience. Um, as far as who belongs in rehab, um, I would say it would come to the, we, we approach it with what's the least restrictive, right? What have you tried? Have you tried quitting on your own? Have you tried, you know, going to support groups? Have you tried getting a counselor, uh, doing maybe a, an outpatient group or intensive outpatient, we call it I, IOP, right? Um, have you tried those things and it still hasn't worked? Because for a lot of people, inpatient rehab is, is really the final attempt. Like, I have to get this taken care of or it's going to kill me. Um, that being said, that doesn't mean you have to be, you know, drinking a fifth a day in order to qualify for rehab. Um, but in most cases, I would say you'd have to be at that point of daily drinking to really need that inpatient 24-7 care. You know, if if you're in a point where I can't stop drinking for more than, you know, 12, 15 hours without getting the shakes, um, then you're probably at that point where inpatient rehab is a good idea. And so is it still, is it 28 days? Is it still, like, how long is it? And what are you doing? It's individualized. Um, It's typically three to four weeks uh, if you're in that rehab. There's detox and there's rehab, right? You have to detox. And then once you go from detox, and a lot of insurance companies treat those two things separately. They, they, They look at your detox. And medical detox from alcohol can be, you know, three to five days depending on, on the amount, um, sometimes longer, and then you start your rehab. So in that situation, you, you detox for like a week, and then you do like three weeks of rehab. And this would all be at the same place? In a lot of situations, yeah. Okay. Um, and so, how? I mean, how would you know that, I mean, I've come off of alcohol and, and felt like I'm detox. I mean, I think we all are. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does take seven to 10 days for alcohol to leave your body. Um, and medical detox can be an emergency for some people. Um, I had actually recently heard somewhere that of the heavy drinkers, so, so way on the scale of substance abuse disorder, but of those really heavy drinkers, 10% would need an actual medical detox and 90% would be fairly uncomfortable, but fairly stable on their own. Can you speak to that? I I think it comes down to how long you've been drinking uh, and how long you've been drinking daily. You know, if you are the type of person who has, I don't know how to gauge it, let's say a bottle of wine. Okay. If you're drinking a bottle of wine every day for six months, you probably need a medical detox to be on the safe side. I mean, we know that of all the drugs we have out there, alcohol is one of the few that can actually have a lethal detox. I mean, you can come off a of heroin and wish you were dead, but heroin detox technically won't kill you. Alcohol detox can, and it's because of the seizures. Um, so a medical detox uses medication to get you off that gradually so your body doesn't seize and there's not those medical dangers. So that's why daily drinkers, I would say, if you've been drinking daily for more than three to six months, you should probably look into medical detox. Wow, that's interesting. And you think about, I mean, I probably should have medically detoxed. (laughs) I'm just going to be honest. When it comes to life or death, I think erring on the side of caution is usually a good idea. And so, I mean, a lot of times, you know, I would work with folks who would come in just for detox. And 
while I don't always recommend that in every situation, sometimes that might be all you need is just, you know, that medically uh, managed detox to get to a point where, okay, now I'm ready to hit the ground running and, and start working my recovery. Uh, and I don't think I need to be in an inpatient setting to do that. I think I can go out and try it on my own. Um, but some people try that and just fail miserably because what I've seen is you detox, you feel awful. You're like, why would I do this to my body? I, you know, I got more sense than this. I'm smarter than this. I'll, you go home, you feel better. And within a couple of weeks, you convince yourself that I'll just be careful this time. I'll just have a couple of drinks and, and, and I won't let it get to that point again. I'm not, I'm not going to drink daily again. Uh, and it, it can happen right away. You know, you're back to your old use level before you realize it. Oh yeah. We, we, it's like a, an ex-boyfriend, like, you know, it wasn't that bad. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we, we had our good times and right. you go back to them. And You know, I met, <laughs> I met a gal in rehab that had over 20 years of, of sobriety and um, she was really active in AA and, and she had sponsored people and was really into recovery. She knew it inside and out um, and then just got lazy with it. And she convinced herself she could have a drink after dinner one night when she was meeting with her adult daughter, you know, who she hadn't seen in, in a while. And they were celebrating something. And so she had a drink after dinner. And she told me it was within three weeks she was drinking daily again after 20 years of sobriety. So it's, it's not anything you could really mess with. I'm pretty convinced of that. Yeah, um, and, and so tell me, we had kind of talked before we started recording about addiction and, and I was saying like, well, I'm just kind of focused on alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, but you said, I, I just think of addiction as addiction. So tell me more about that. Yeah. So addiction from a medical perspective, it doesn't matter what you're addicted to. Um, and you'll find that cross addiction is a very common thing with people who, you know, get into trouble with one substance, so they switch to another. Um, the addictive part of it, you know, there's addiction and there's chemical dependency. You can get chemically dependent on alcohol where your body, you know, physically needs it in order to feel normal. But the addiction is, is more of a mental, spiritual, all-encompassing disease. And it doesn't matter what your drug of choice is uh, in that aspect. If you have the tendency towards addiction, you could get addicted to just about anything. Do you think addiction can be a good thing? No, not like by, it de- never, by definition. It doesn't matter what you're, like say you're addicted to helping people. Right. Well, I would use uh, in group a lot of times, I would use the example of running uh, because there are people who are avid runners and if they don't get their run in, you know, it, they're not okay. They run every day. And you look at these people who, who run all the time, and is it, is it a bad thing? There's a line, isn't there? You know, addiction, per definition, is continued use or continued behavior despite negative consequences. So if I got so into running that I was ignoring my family, um, that my, you know, all my toenails fell off and... You know, my relationships were falling apart and I was cranky if I had to miss a run and I would take it out on my loved ones. I mean, that's an addiction. And I would have to look at recovering from that because it's no longer helpful to me. So in order for something to qualify as an addiction, it has to be destructive to your life. Okay, that makes sense. And what do you consider recovery? Um, so... Being in recovery means I'm no longer doing whatever it was that I was addicted to. That's, the, I mean, that's the definition, right? I mean, there, there are a lot of people that look at that fantasy, as was kind of mentioned earlier, of returning to controlled use. That maybe I can, if I'm sober for X amount of time, I can eventually be strong enough or smart enough or stable enough where I can go back to how it was when I first got started, where I was just having a couple and I was fine. And in my experience, you, that's not a possible 
thing. I, I've never seen a working example of anybody who's gotten to an addictive, destructive level and then become a casual user years later. That's the fantasy, but I've never seen a working yeah. example of it. But you're also on the side of seeing quote unquote rock bottom. Right, you work in yeah, you work in inpatient rehab, you see the worst examples. You don't see the functional people. Yeah. Yeah. But just my understanding of how the addictive process works and like the the gal I, I shared that had the twenty years of sobriety, I mean those I heard so many different stories of that where people would have years of sobriety. Um and everything was going well. And just that idea would pop in their head that, yeah, I could go back and I f- could probably just have a couple. Mm-hmm. And it just it just never seems to work that way. How would you say, you know, because you've been in the business for 20 years, what changes have you seen? And, and also, I guess, just historically, like what, how, what, if anything, has changed in how we treat addiction? I mean, I don't know in 20 years if it's really changed that dramatically. I think it's it's probably pretty similar to how to where I started. I know historically, um, there's probably a lot more stigma than there is now. I mean, the stigma is still there, but I think it was a lot more severe, you know, back in the, the 50s and 60s. Um, they have an understanding of it as a disease now. Um, so there's a little less blame that's going along. You know, when, when things were first getting started in, in treating alcoholism, it was just looked at as you just have bad willpower or you don't have self-control. And now we have, you know, enough medical knowledge to know, no, that's not true. There's, it's, it varies from individual to individual, and there's a lot of factors that go, come into play when it comes to whether or not you become, you know, an alcoholic or an addict. And on that note, like, are there any trends you see um, in in the facility you work? Like, wow, there's a lot more women than men, or you, any like socioeconomic trends or anything like that? No, not really. I I think when it comes to addiction, it doesn't it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't care what your gender, your race. You know, I. As another thing I used to say in group all the time, can you think of a race that, um, or ethnicity rather, that, you know, is not known for their drinking? I mean, you think of anybody and like the Irish are known for their drinking. I mean, everybody's known for their drinking. I, and I think it's because everybody has the capacity to be a heavy drinker. Um, even somebody born into a family where Nobody touched alcohol. Maybe it was uh, because of religion or something like that. And that person maybe doesn't even start drinking until their late 20s because it just wasn't something they were into. Even that person has the potential to become an addict. Everybody does. But some people would have to use so much and so often that they never reach that addictive level. But one thing we've seen, and this is recent, I guess, trend-wise, is opiates. Mm-hmm. You know, over the past 30 years, we've seen people who had no prior history of addiction, who had a car accident or, you know, a back injury or major surgery, and because of that recovery and the heavy doses of opiates that they took for that long period of time, they developed addiction. And that... I think inadvertently has given us a lot of knowledge as to how addict addiction really works. And it works from prolonged habitual use of an addictive substance. That's really all it takes at the end of the day. So it doesn't matter if you're a man, woman, poor, rich, whatever it, it can, it can affect you. Yeah. Interesting. And so when someone's in rehab, um, they do their three to four weeks or whatnot, and they so basically you're breaking that that everyday habitualness. Right. What happens when they leave? So you talk about you know what are we going to do? What are you going to do when you leave here? And and that becomes the question. I think as soon as you enter a rehab is you know when this is all said and done, how is my life going to be different? 
what do I, what do I have to do differently? Um, one of the preparation for discharge speeches I always made was think about all the time you spent getting your drug of choice, using your drug of choice, and being under the influence of your drug of choice. Take all that time that you were spending doing those three things. You're going to have all that time to fill now. What are you going to do with it? <laughs> you know, and for a lot of people, I would say for most people who get to that level where they need inpatient rehab, you, you need to fill it with recovery. And whether that be AA or NA or some other support group, uh, smart recovery is a good alternative for people who don't uh, particularly like the 12-step model um, or an outpatient group or individual therapy, something like that to actively work on your recovery and taper down. So you're going from 24-7 care to maybe, you know, four or five times a week care to you know, maybe tapering down three months down the road if, if you're still stable in your recovery and you slowly wean it off. And some people, you know, some people continue working their programs every day for the rest of their lives because it helps them stay sober. And so how, what, how does AA come into play and, and what the 12-step program, like, how much do you or rehabs like interface with that i mean i think it's different from rehab to rehab um i think you'd be hard-pressed to find a rehab that doesn't at least give you an introduction to what aa is all about um and i don't know how familiar you are with the steps but the first step is you know uh, we admitted to ourselves that we're powerless over drugs and alcohol and our lives had become unmanageable um and i think that is something you have to face regardless of anything. You know, um, you have to you have to admit to yourself that I can't control this because if I could, I would have by now. You know, once you get to the point where you're going into an inpatient rehab, you obviously have all these negative consequences you've somehow tied to your use. That has to be enough to tell you that if I had 100% control over this, I would have stopped it before it got to this point. So, so from my experience, you spend a lot of time talking about just that initial first step and then whether or not they want to continue and, and, and explore the 12 step programs. I mean, a lot of people do because it does have a pretty good track record as good as you can have for treating this disorder because it's a tough one. Um, but they're pretty well known and they got the history and it, and, and it works for a lot of people. So, but I don't think it's the only answer. And so I, with the people I worked with, I was always open to, look, AA is not the be all end all. It's not the only answer. There's lots of answers out there. You got to find the one that works for you. Yeah. And I appreciate that because um, I've said before, I say a lot, like I, when I was struggling with drinking, like I thought rehab or AA I thought those were my only options and I just felt really alone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm getting teary. Um, and so I, I did find like other options and other people like me that were like not so rock bottom, like you said, that needed a medical detox that were, you know, I, I was still able to function and, and get up and take care of my kids and, but I just could not get my drinking under control. Um, and so for me, it, it was helpful for me to finally find these other groups. For me, it was an online group Sure. Um, on Facebook. It was finding um, This Naked Mind by Annie Grace. I don't know if you've read that. Um, but it, it was just kind of a paradigm shift about how we as a society have treated alcohol use and um, it, it really has focused more on the substance. Like you said, like you're, you can become physically dependent on alcohol. There's all these social groups, you give them alcohol, you're going to have people that are addicted and mm -hmm. dependent on it because of the substance itself. Yeah. If you didn't use it, if you never used it, you never would have a problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of dumb. <laughs> but yeah. Um, I, 
and I don't know where I'm going with this train of thought. I guess well, I'm going to where you said um, it's not just AA and it and it's not just rehab. Like there there are other options. And why I wanted to have you on here is because I have been. I don't want to say anti rehab, but very um, hesitant about rehab in mm-hmm. general. Well, I think most people, when they think about it, uh, it seems like a very extreme step. Yes. Um, and it's our nature, if we're addicted, it's our nature to kind of downplay our disorder and say, "Oh, it's not that bad yet. I'll I'll look I'll look into rehab once it's bad enough." Um, but the nature of addiction we don't ever admit that to ourselves. You know, we usually have to have somebody kicking ourselves, dragging us into rehab before we look at it. And even then it's sometimes not enough. So, um, but I still think despite the fact that there's a lot of truths in how addiction affects person to person to person to person, I still think it's an individual experience. And I still think the recovery can be an individual thing. Um, but sometimes there, you just have to get lucky and find the thing that works for you. And it sounds like, you know, you stumbled onto something that worked for you. Um, some people need to be, need that strong arm and need to be forced into, look, this is how you do it. Follow these steps, A to B to C to D, and then you'll, you know, then you'll be sober and that's how you do it. Versus, okay, let's talk to you about what works for you and, and let's talk to you about you know, how, how your drinking has affected your life and, and what drinking provides for you and what, you know, more of a gentle approach. So some people need a harsh approach. Some people need a gentle approach. Different things work for different people. Yeah. So true. So very true. Um, well, let me dress some of the rehab kind of myths or okay. facts and, and just see uh, what you have to say about them since okay. you are my rehab expert. Okay. So, so one is that rehab is expensive. Um, well, yeah, it can be. It, it um, you know, this day and age, it all comes down to insurance. Uh, most insurances will, will cover rehab uh, under certain conditions. Um, severity is usually looked at. And, and like I said earlier, what else have you tried? A lot of insurance companies will say, look, this person hasn't even done outpatient yet, or they haven't even tried this or that. Let's try something cheaper and see if that works. And then, you know, and so I can see that as being a good idea, but at the same time, it's like, let's see if you fail at this before we pay for this, you know? So, uh, can be a little harsh as far as that goes. So yeah, it's expensive. If you were to pay for rehab out of your pocket, it'd be like buying a brand new car, (laughs) a really nice car. (laughs) Well, and is this talking about just your rehab here? Just, just kind of across the board. If you were going to pay for a a three week inpatient rehab, you're looking at, you know, out of pocket, probably over 30, 40 grand. Okay. So most people don't pay out of pocket, though. It's an it's an insurance thing. Yeah. And so if you have insurance, most insurances are going to cover it, again, under certain criteria. You have to meet that criteria, and they'll look at how long you've been drinking, how much are you drinking, what's your physical health like, what other complications do you have, um, mental health comes into it, do you have depression, are you struggling with you know, anxiety? All that stuff factors in, age, um, all of that as to whether or not you're a good candidate for whichever insurance company you're dealing with, um, oh, whether or not you're a good candidate for recovery. Because, you know, that's the way healthcare is in this country. People can't afford that kind of stuff out of pocket. Just like you couldn't afford most surgeries out of your pocket either. So it's, it's kind of the same thing. Okay. And then that kind of goes to um, like who's in rehab. So, so it it seems like there's either rehab is for celebrities who are rich who can afford the out of pocket, or it's full of like quote unquote junkies or or people that have gotten in trouble with the law and they're forced to go to rehab. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a big spectrum, right? You know, go back to 28 days. That rehab that they're in, that's a celebrity scale rehab where they have the nice boats that they go out on and the ropes course and, and those kinds of things that, you know, the fancier the place, probably the more expensive it is and, and the more you're going to end up paying for. So 
um, you'll have more wealthy people. But the nature of addiction is there, there aren't a lot of wealthy addicts out there because if you're at the point where you need inpatient recovery, chances are you've blown your money on a lot of, you know, on your addiction. So you don't have $30,000 in savings. Otherwise, you wouldn't be considering the fact that alcohol is ruining your life. So, so most people don't have a lot of money who go into rehab. Um, as far as the, what was the question, junkies? Well, I, I guess that, that's a terrible word. Well, um, but I guess um, people who have gotten in trouble with the law and are forced to go into rehab. Is that true? Does that happen? It does happen upon occasion, but a court-ordered rehab would be a different thing. You know, there's there there are people that go into rehab because they're strongly urged to. I mean, a lot of people have legal consequences from their drinking or their drug use, and their PO says it's probably a good idea if you look into, you know, getting sober before your court date. Um, but uh, there. If it was somebody who was currently in prison uh, for drug-related crimes, um, then they're not going to go to a, an inpatient rehab outside of that that prison system. Okay, because the prison has their own. They have their own rehab. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Good to know. Um, how about rehab doesn't work? Like, what what are what is the success rate? Well, the success rate of addictive recovery is one in five. Mm-hmm. Um, regardless of, you know, what angle you take. Um, and that might be an outdated number, but um, at last count, last research I did is one out of five people who uh, develop addiction uh, will die sober, which means 80% of people who develop addiction will eventually die from a drug-related cause. And whether that be a car accident while intoxicated or liver failure or heart attack, um, that was substance induced, induced, you know, that, that's, that would be that 80%. So it's, it's a tough disease to recover from anyway. John, that's really fucking bleak. (laughs) It is. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Cause (laughs) it, again, it goes back to the, the struggle with returning to controlled use after you've gotten to that addictive level. Um, that's what happens to people. And we were talking about the difference between drug addiction and, and alcoholism and, and alcoholism, drug addiction to me are one and the same, but there are some differences, uh, you know, with heroin or opiates, something like that. If you're using heroin or opiates every day and then you go into an inpatient rehab and you get sober and you know you haven't used in like three four five months and then you use the potential for overdose is a lot higher with something like heroin uh or you know prescription opiates versus alcohol the the potential for overdose is a little less but alcohol tends to be more widely destructive to the to the human body it like negatively affects every organ in your body (laughs) Well, yeah, and and just going back to that book, um, This Naked Mind, or maybe it was her alcohol experiment, um, but she there there's a harm study and a harm score. Have mm-hmm. you heard of that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so alcohol has like a higher harm score than heroin yeah. or opioids. Yeah. Because it's looking at overall like yeah, societal it, harm. And it hits everything in the body. It, it just... It negatively affects almost every organ in the body. Yeah, and not just the body, but like society. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, and that one's tough because alcohol is such a part of mainstream society. Yeah. That it's it's hard to say is that is that score fair? Because if everybody was using heroin, <laughs> would it be different? Because um, everybody's using alcohol, and you see alcohol being the leading cause for a lot of you know, yes. auto accidents and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, completed suicides often happen under the influence of alcohol. And I think part of that is just because it's it's the one that's so readily available to people. Yeah, grim. Um, what were my other myths? Uh, 
all rehab programs are the same. Yeah, that's definitely not true. Yeah, I would say if you were actually at a point where you were considering it, shop around, see, usually your first call is to your insurance provider, whoever that might be, if you have one, um, and they can tell you their preferred programs and look into them and look at what their program looks like. You know, how is it structured? Um, most of them are group therapy-based. Group Group tends to be the most successful way to treat addiction because you get that community of people supporting each other because they're all going, you know, facing that common enemy. And, and so we found that, that group therapy is the more successful approach to recovery. But every program, you know, is run a little bit differently. And there are faith-based programs, you know, um, that are more religious based and and then uh, there's secular ones um, I mentioned uh, smart recovery is actually a, a Adlerian based so it's it's more of a cognitive behavioral based approach to recovery so there's different ones out there and I would say shop around and look at which one fits the most for you so what's Adlerian it sounds so, like uh, a- Alfred Adler was oh, Adler. 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 It's, yes. It sounded like a Star Wars term. <laughs> Just saying. Alderaan, I <laughs> or think, a is what planet? you're thinking of. Yeah. Okay. Um, but no, Adler was a student of Freud who ended up, he's basically the godfather of modern cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and a lot of the, the different facets of, of cognitive behavioral therapy that have the offshoots, if you will, have all come from that base. What do you think has been your most helpful tools or advice? Whew. Let's see. What Share my... your wisdom. <laughs> I, um, I'm, I'm thinking back because I did a lot of group therapy when I was working in rehab. And uh, I would go, basically, I would go back to groups that resonated most with the community. So I would kind of try things out and see what worked. And so the, the one I would talk about is, is the, how addiction develops over time and how it varies from person to person. And you have somebody who is, you know, born into this world. Maybe they have an alcoholic parent. Uh, maybe they have an alcoholic uh, grandfather or they have addiction somewhere in their family, um, but it's not, necessarily a prominent thing in their life and maybe they go through life without a lot of trauma and maybe they don't start drinking until 19 20 21 years old um, versus somebody else who maybe has a pretty disruptive home life active drinking in the home maybe some abuse they start drinking earlier maybe 13 14 years old and then they experiment with other drugs and get into trouble there those are two people that have two very different starts uh, as far as whether or not they're going to become problem addicts. Um, Both of them have that potential to be addicts, but the second person I talked about has that higher potential to develop addiction earlier on, whereas the second person might not develop addiction at all, or if they do, maybe it happens later in life because of something else that, you know, maybe they go through a, a, a divorce and they don't know how to cope with it. So they start drinking every day. Um, I worked with some folks who became addicts in retirement because maybe they were, you know, they'd get off work and they'd have a couple drinks and they'd go to bed and they get up and go to work in the morning. And then here they retire and all of a sudden they're thinking, oh, I could have a drink at 11 o'clock in the morning because I don't have anything to do. And, and, if you maintain that pattern before you know it, you get dependent on it. So it's really just sheer amount of use. So if you take somebody and just say, I want you to become an alcoholic, um, and that person decides, okay, I'm going to try to become an alcoholic, and they start drinking every day, trying to develop addiction, they'll get there, no matter who they are. If they stay committed and they drink daily for long enough, they're going to develop addiction. So that potential is in all of us. So kind of accepting that. And then, because I, I'm sure you've heard the term uh, normies, how 
alcoholics, well, it's an AA term, but you know, you talk about the alcoholics and you talk about the normies and those are the non-alcoholics, the okay. social drinkers. Um, but even the social drinkers could be addicts if they drank enough. So wiping that out and just saying everybody has the potential for addiction. It's just whether or not their life has pushed them into that area yet. But once you've reached that ceiling, that addictive ceiling, once you're there, you don't get to go back down. And everybody's born with a different ceiling. So sometimes, you know, you talk about the trauma and the, um, the things I've been through and the g- genetics that I have, my predispositions to alcoholism, all of that goes into determining when I reach that addictive level. But once I get there, then I don't get to go back down. I'm there. I'm an addict. And now I'm in recovery. So you're either an addict in recovery or you're a practicing addict. And that's, uh, that seems to resonate with a lot of folks. That does. And I find it, like, comforting. Mm-hmm. Like, this, could ha- this can happen to anybody. Right. You're not broken. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, John. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then the other thing is just what our drug of choice did for us. Um, the other group I would run is I would talk about, imagine somebody late in life, let's say they're in their late 80s or whatever, and, and they're looking at the end of their life, and you ask that person, what were the times in your life that you were closest to euphoria? And if that person never touched a drug, never touched a drink in their life, they're going to say something like, the time I fell in love, the birth of my son, walking my daughter down the aisle, you know, watching my son graduate law school or whatever. Just these really meaningful moments in their life where they were euphoric. Now, what is the long-term consequence if I can experience something on that level of euphoria just by picking up a pipe, you know, just by snorting a line or just by, you know, taking enough drinks? If I can get to that level on my couch doing nothing, what's the long-term consequence of that in my brain? The long-term consequence is those great moments in life don't mean so much because I've, I've hit that euphoric level over and over and over and over again to where my my brain just doesn't have the chemistry left in it to make me feel euphoric anymore. And that's, that can be a hard thing to struggle with. Yeah. I mean, you chemically induced it and it, it, you just don't always recreate it Mm -hmm. in the same way. And you can never get back there. Right. You know, uh, heroin addicts say it's, it's like chasing that first high Mm -hmm. the first time they used you know, that, that was the best, and they always want to catch that again, but it's just not, it's not in the cards. It's not chemically possible. You know, the older we get, too, it's the, the less we have available uh, naturally in our brains, the neurotransmitters, the chemicals in our brains that are natural. Um, you know, they get diminished over time anyway, but they get diminished a lot faster if we're using chemicals. Yeah, and it, it's not just that it, like, it kind of dulls everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I do feel since, you know, I'm sober, I don't drink. I, I just feel like everything's clear. Like yeah. I just cleaned my windshield or, you know, I'm just like, wow. Like, it do, and it does start to come back. Yeah, it's not it's not like you will never enjoy life again. But it's that's part of recovery is initially that initial phase when you stop using things can feel really, really tough. Because it's it's hard to get going and, and you just don't have gas in the tank, you know. Yeah, everything felt tough. Like I just felt like I was an exposed nerve. Not mm. tough, but just I was so used to numbing out all my feelings every night mm-hmm. um, that when I took that away, I I just for some reason I think of myself as plankton <laughs> from um, SpongeBob. Oh. <laughs> okay. You don't watch SpongeBob. I don't. I don't. That's shocking. Okay. Well, anyway, he's just like this little green character, just really vulnerable and exposed. You could step on him or whatever. And I that's how I felt. I just felt like a little vulnerable, squishy, just highly sensitive nerve. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the sensitivity, I mean, you look at a lot of when you say numbing out, a lot of people use 
in order to deal with unpleasant feelings. I mean, not maybe that's not why they started using, but it becomes that go-to like, oh, I'm upset. Oh, I had a hard day. Um, oh, I'm anxious, whatever it is. But we could use anxiety as a good example because that's, that's kind of a universal for a lot of folks. They feel anxious. They use, they feel better. Um, the long-term consequence is that you never develop any other ways to deal with anxiety other than using or drinking. Um, so when you decide to get sober and you get anxious, your first thought is going to be, I can't handle this. I don't know how to handle anxiety sober. I've never done it, you know, or I haven't done it in years. And so that can be a real struggle for folks. Yeah, a hundred percent. I felt like the good, you know, even though I was raw, I'm still raw. <laughs> but the nice thing is like, I just, I, I laugh so much more. I just, mm -hmm. everything does feel, everything feels more. Mm -hmm. So that everything good, but everything bad too. Like right. it just all feels. Sure. Yeah. It's the ups and downs. And that's the thing I think a lot of people need to accept is that that's, that's life, right? Is you have ups and downs, you have great times, you have bad times, you have not so good times, you have boring times, you know, when nothing much is happening and, and you deal with all the ups and downs and that makes the ups more meaningful because you've had the downs, right? If I, if I have to deal with the bad stuff, the good stuff means more. Yeah, I agree. Dang. Well, this has been so insightful. Oh, good. <laughs> but before we go, cause I know you're a movie buff. So okay. along the lines of 28 days, okay. which you said was one of the more accurate. I, I think the, the presentation of the rehab process okay. is, is, not 100% faithful because it's a Hollywood movie, but I think it's pretty accurate. Well, yeah. So what are what are your other favorite addiction movies? Uh, I really like, well, as far as recovery movies, I really okay. like Clean and Sober with Michael Keaton. Oh, okay. Yes. I think that's a pretty good one. Um, and then When a Man Loves a Woman, classic, classic, and just amazing performances in that movie. Um, I thought that was a really good one too, as far as it depicting. And then what's the one with Denzel Washington where he's the pilot? Flight. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see that one? That I was. That's hard to watch. It is. Uh, but I also along those movie lines. So I think that is also why for me, I felt like I have to hit rock bottom and I can only go to AA or rehab mm -hmm. because that's what movies show us. Mm -hmm. Um. So, yes, it might be an accurate description of or depiction of someone hitting rock bottom and going to rehab. Mm -hmm. Like, it's it's not a, a typical majority. Right. Well, it's it's mainstream recovery. So I think that's why a lot of movies portray it that way is that's that's what's known. Um, and a lot of people do get sober that way. You know, it's just not the, it's not the only way. There's there's lots yeah. of different avenues. And for me personally, I'm also just like a huge reader, but for me that what was helpful, not the movies, but, but we call it quit lit. Um, so the recovery memoirs, the recovery books, mm -hmm. those were like a way for me to read about other people like me. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't always the Hollywood yeah. portrayal. Yeah. And there's, I, I'm, there's a lot of good literature out there. I'm, I'm sure for, for recovery, if you know where to look yeah. for it, it's that if, have you ever tried to read the big book of AA? Yeah. It's a little dated. I think it needs some updating. Well, that's <laughs> been a complaint of people who are against AA is that here, here it was what in the fifties, forties, um, written by a white man, Yeah, written by a white man. Um, so it's viewed very patriarchal. Um, and, and it is. It's from a different time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so there's a lot of um, just other groups coming out of of being, I don't want to say anti-AA, but some of them are very anti-AA. Well, they need to offer, offer an alternative to it because it really, 
I guess that's one thing I could say has changed in the past 20 years is, is when I started, it really was the only game in town. It was the only thing you could offer people that was free. Yeah. Hey, you need support. Go to AA. And it was all over. And now that we have the, the internet and we have all these different apps and, and different ways you can connect to other recovering people. It's not as, it's not as dead set. Like you have to, you have to go to groups. You have to go to AA groups in order to stay sober. No, there's other alternatives. You know what else I find interesting about recovery now is that, and it still is, it still goes on, but just the stigma and the anonymity that you really have, and, and alcohol, alcoholics anonymous, like Mm -hmm. you really had to hide that you had a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's still kind of that stigma there, but I think more and more we're recovering out loud. And that's partly why I'm doing this is just, I want, I felt so alone that I want other yeah. people to know, like you can look like me, be like me, you can have a problem and then you can recover. Yeah. And well, and what I would tell people that I was working with who, you know, we're soured on AA or, or we're not interested in it. It's the, the reason AA works at its core is it connects you to other recovering people. And if you, nowadays, we have so many different ways to connect to other recovering people that it, that's not the only avenue. You can find other ways to connect to other people who can hear you talk about your struggle and instantly say, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Because I, I went through the same thing. And that's it, and we hold each other accountable, and that's how we recover. And that's why AA works so well is because of that dynamic. And, and you can get it from other sources now. So, Yeah, and, and I've heard the opposite of addiction is community. Mm-hmm. And that's right Absolutely. where we're at. Yeah, I like that. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on here. This was really interesting. Mm-hmm. No problem. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Alcohol Tipping Point. I'm always here for you guys, so please feel free to reach out and talk to me on Instagram at Alcohol Tipping Point and check out my website, alcoholtippingpoint.com. Again, I hope you can use these tips we talked about for the rest of your week. And until then, see you next time.